I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, and please follow along as I read from verse 1 as far as verse 15. So please hear the word of the Lord. I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Today I'm going to do four things, and this is going to be my approach uh, next Sunday and my approach the Sunday after. So today, next Lord's Day, the following Lord's Day, a fourfold approach. Firstly, I'm going to provide, I'm going to give you an outline, very simple outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Why? I want to impress upon you how Paul's argument develops in these chapters. I want us to be able to follow that expression I often use. I want us to be able to follow his thought flow. So crucial, so important for interpretation. We need to follow Paul's thought flow so that we allow him to define his terms and goals. We allow him to define his own expressions 
and objectives. So I'm going to give it to you three times. Today, next Lord's Day, and the following Lord's Day, a very simple but somewhat comprehensive outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Second thing I'm going to do is explain a portion of chapter 11. Today, obviously, verses 11 through 15. Next Lord's Day, verses 16 through 24. The following Sunday, the third Sunday, verses 25 through 32. The governing concept is found back in verse 5. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant chosen by grace. What Paul does in verse 11 through verse 32 is he gives us three descriptions of this remnant. So description number one today, verses 11 through 15. Description number two, next Lord's Day, verses 16 through 24. And then description number three, the last Sunday, verses 25 through 32. The third thing I'm going to do is this. I'm going to point you heavenward. I'm going to say something of God's character. Why? Because that is actually what Paul has chiefly in view in these three chapters, is the character of God. He is making, he is presenting a tightly woven argument. Why? Because he is defending the nature of God. He's defending the character of God. And so I want to follow Paul's objective and today say something of God's nature. Namely, we're going to consider his sovereignty. A week from now, we're going to consider something of his nature, his severity. Not my word, it's Paul's word. And then two weeks from now, we're going to consider something of his nature, principally his mercy. God's sovereignty, God's severity, God's mercy, as revealed in these three texts from verse 11 through to verse 32. Fourth thing I'm going to do is this. I'm going to emphasize our duty, our duty, our responsibility. Each of these three texts merits, demands a response. And so I'm going to stress something of this response from each of these texts as we make our way through this section again from verse 11 through to verse 32. Did you get the four? You don't have to worry about it. I'm going to repeat it next Lord's Day and the following Lord's Day. As a matter of fact, if you just take the worship guide and you look at the sermon outline, you have it there. Number one, an outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11, right? And then first description, that's the second heading, verses 11 through 15. Third heading, sovereignty of God. There you have it. I'm going to point as heavenward, the nature of God. And then the fourth heading, a reasonable response. Fourfold approach today and the next two Sundays. So we begin with our first objective, our first aim, an outline of chapters 9, 10, and 11. My good friend Arthur is going to bring up a slide behind me on the screen. There you have it. I have said it, but it has been a while, and so it is worth repeating it. It is of utmost importance that we get what is happening in chapter 8 in order to get, grasp, what's transpiring in chapters 9, 10, and 11. In the 8th chapter toward the end, Paul stresses what? He stresses the fact that God foreknew his people, chose them before the foundation of the world. Those whom God foreknew, what did he do? He predestined them. Those whom he predestined, what did he do? He called them in time. 
Those whom he called, what did he do? He justified them. And those whom he has justified, he has glorified. It's an absolute certainty from the vantage point of God's eternal decree. Because we have that certainty, we know what? In Romans 8, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, I am sure, I am absolutely certain, celebrates the Apostle Paul right at the end of chapter 8, that there is nothing in the entire created order. There is nothing in the cosmos there is nothing in the universe that can separate us, God's people, from His love in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he brings the first eight chapters to this pinnacle. Then what does he do in chapters 9, 10, and 11? He says, now I know I need to deal with something. I know I need to deal with something. It has been brewing since the third chapter. Somewhat of a dilemma. The dilemma is the nation of Israel. God promised Abraham, I will be your God. And I will be God not only to you, but to your descendants after you. We have the patriarchs and those covenant promises, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, it creates something of a dilemma. Why? Because the physical descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, in the days of the Apostle Paul, by and large, they are accursed. They are cut off from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if God made that promise to Abraham concerning his physical descendants, the nation of Israel, if he made that promise, we can only conclude what? That the word of God has failed. God has not kept his promise. Let's call a spade a spade. And if he has not kept his promise to the nation of Israel, what makes us think for one moment he will keep his promise to us? So in actual fact, I don't really have anything to be sure about. It's really not a certainty that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Because obviously God's word has failed in relation to the nation of Israel. Therefore, it is entirely possible that God's word can fail in relation to us, his people, the church. That is the dilemma. He presents it. First five verses, six verses of chapter nine. He repeats it. In the very first verse of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And therefore, are we to conclude from that that God's word has failed? He repeats the dilemma in verse 11 of chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Completely cut off, all of them. Meaning what? God's word, God's promise has failed. Do you see how he never lets go of this central issue throughout the three chapters? He is dealing with something very pastoral. What is his solution? His solution is based in logic. I shared this with you a few months ago. Do you remember the basics of logic? Uh, logic is based on premises. Premise one, premise two, I derive a conclusion. I think the example I gave you is the following. If it isn't this one, I can't remember the one I gave. This is a good one anyway. 
Premise number one, fire burns. We all agree, right? Fire consumes. Premise number two, I'm flammable. What is the conclusion? Fire is dangerous. That's logic. I know it's fallen on hard times in our day, but that is logic. We acknowledge certain facts, premises, and then we derive conclusions. So what is Paul dealing with? Paul is dealing with false premises. Here's here's what Paul is dealing with. Paul is dealing with people who think what? Ethnic Israel constitute the people of God. And God gave them certain promises. That's premise number one. Premise number two is this. They have not inherited those promises. By and large, the majority of them are cut off, accursed. What is the conclusion? Therefore, God has not kept his word. That's, that's the, the, the mentality. That is the thinking he is addressing. So what is his solution? His solution is simply to demonstrate, look, your premise is wrong. He defines Israel. And so in chapter 9, verse 6, what does he say? He states it very clearly. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So your first premise is wrong. Ethnic Israel never was the people of God, salvifically speaking. There was an Israel within Israel. And he goes on, he makes it even clearer. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And so there is an Israel within Israel, a spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. There are children of Abraham among the children of Abraham. Spiritual children of Abraham among ethnic children of Abraham. He says in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, his ethnic descendants who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so this dilemma you're wrestling with, well, how do we explain the nation of Israel? It is built, it is constructed on a faulty premise. You think that covenant made with Abraham and all of those covenant promises were given to the physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Israel. What is Paul's point here? You've misunderstood. There is an Israel within Israel. There are the children of Abraham numbered among the children of Abraham. He repeats The solution in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. Look again. I read it just a few moments ago. What is the dilemma? It's presented there right at the start of verse 1. I ask them, has God rejected his people? And so has he reneged on his promises? Has he totally abandoned ethnic Israel? What's his response? No, look at me. I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and yet I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so just as there is an Israel within Israel, and just as there are children of Abraham among the children of Abraham, there is a people of God within the people of God. And the object of the promise was never ethnic Israel. The object of the promises was never simply the physical descendants of Abraham. The object of the promises was never this national people of God. The object of the promises was always the Israel within Israel. 
Not only that, the children of Abraham within the children of Abraham. Not only that, the people of God within the people of God. In other words, the object of God's promise was always the remnant, an expression that Paul himself uses in the fifth verse. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, always been a remnant, chosen by grace. Now, he makes it a little complicated, doesn't he? You go back up, dilemma number one there, as it's presented in the first five verses of chapter 9. The solution, there it is in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 9. He builds on the solution in verses 24 through 29. See, between that solution, there are a couple of questions, aren't there? Do you remember that? He needs to deal with the doctrine of election. He raises a number of, election, a number of objections. And so that's what he deals with, more or less, in verses 14 through 23. He comes back to the solution in verse 24 of chapter 9, and look at what he says there. Actually, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so he has his elect in view. Now notice what Paul says in the 24th verse. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What is he doing here? He is actually expanding our definition of the people of God. He's going to do the same thing in chapter 11, our text next week. He's going to demonstrate, look, there's this shoot, and there, is the, there are these roots. The roots, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The roots, all of those promises in the Old Testament that God gave to them. I want you to understand this, that there are now branches there are branches connected to these roots. And I want you to understand that, that those Jews who did not believe, they were broken off. A lot of the branches remained. That is the remnant within Israel. The Israel within Israel. The sons of Abraham among the sons of Abraham. The people of God within the people of God. Not only that, but then wild branches, Gentiles, have been what? Grafted in. How many roots are there now? Still only one root. This new tree did not replace the old tree. It's the same tree. It is what it always was. The people of God, the remnant, which now consists of what? Always has, as a matter of fact, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. So has God's word failed? God's word hasn't failed. You've completely misunderstood to whom the promises were given. That's the problem. And in these three chapters, he is defining in very clear terms the recipients of the promise. And he repeats the dilemma in verse 11 of our text, here it is again, the question. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Did God just simply cast away ethnic Israel in its entirety? And so therefore, has God got nothing more to do with them? This dilemma that's been created in the mind. The solution, verse 11 through 32, where he builds on that expression back in verse 5, that at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He now gives a threefold description of that remnant. The true Israel, the true children of Abraham, the true heirs of promise, the true people of God. A threefold description of the remnant. I've summed it all up for you on one slide. I know you think that seems inconceivable, but here it is. Next slide, Arthur. All summed up. Paul's central thought in these three chapters, we need to be clear on what he is doing. 
Why? So that we let him define his terms and define his objectives. There it is. He has made this first point. There is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. I hope we're all agreed on that by now, because that is what Paul is arguing in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 9. He argues for it again in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. There is a spiritually elect remnant within a physically ethnic nation. Second point he has made is this. This remnant is extended to include the elect from among the Gentiles. He argues that at the end of chapter 9. He's going to argue it again next week in his analogy of the vine and the natural branches and the unnatural branches. Here we go, bringing it all to a head. The solution to the dilemma, therefore, is simply this. It is that this remnant is the object of God's covenantal promises. This remnant is the object, the heir of God's covenantal promises. Therefore, God's word hasn't failed. He's done exactly what he promised he would do. Therefore, going all the way back to the end of chapter 8, I am, I am sure, as one foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and already glorified in the sight of God. As one who I have absolute certainty that he's now working and causing all things to work together for my good because I've been called according to his purpose. I have this, this conviction, this unwavering conviction, certainty. I, I know for sure that there is nothing in the entire created order that can separate me from God's love in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have this conviction, certainty, absolute assurance. And this apparent dilemma in the minds of some resolved for me pastorally in chapters 9, 10, and 11, as Paul basically, I know it seems convoluted at times, but he basically does one simple thing. He simply defines our terms for us. He helps us understand who is Israel and who indeed are the recipients of the promise. That's the first thing we're going to do today, an outline of the chapter. Second thing is this, a description of the remnant. So there are three. We're looking at the first description of that remnant chosen by grace, the phrase he uses back in verse 5. Here's the description again as it begins in verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So he's repeating that dilemma. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Notice the present tense. I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so again, the dilemma as expressed in the question at the outset of verse 11, I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall. He is simply repeating the question which he asked back in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? The vast majority of them are cut off. The vast majority of them have rejected the gospel. They've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, am I supposed to conclude from that that God has totally abandoned the Jews? Totally abandoned them. Paul's response is what? By no means. 
And now what does he do? He takes us inside God's divine decrees. He takes us inside God's, what we would call his divine workings. And he shows us God's eternal purpose being realized in action. He emphasizes the fact that there is actually a divine design behind what is happening. It is summed up in three parts, if you like. Part one to this divine design is this, God's purpose in hardening the Jews. What is it? It's saving the Gentiles. Look at verse 11, by no means, rather through their trespass. So through their disobedience, through their stumbling, through their hardening, what has happened? By divine appointment, design, salvation has come to the Gentile. That's the first part in this divine design. The second part in this divine design is this, God's purpose in saving the Gentiles, which is what? Convincing the Jews. So look again at verse 11. By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's part one in the divine design. Here is part two of the divine design. So as to make Israel jealous, bring about conviction. What is the third part in this divine design? God's purpose in convincing the Jews is saving the Jews. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass, so if their hardening, their stumbling, means riches for the world, right? And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So in other words, if that, has been, if that was God's purpose and God's working by divine appointment, this hardening of, 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 of the vast majority of Jews, whereby the gospel has now gone forth to the Gentiles and God has called his people from, and is calling his people from the, among the Gentiles. If that is what is accomplished there, then as God now makes his people numbered among the Jews jealous Jealous through the salvation he has given to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He is speaking what? Of the full inclusion of this remnant from among the Jews, brought about how? By this jealousy that is produced by God's salvation of the Gentiles, which was brought about how? By God's hardening of the vast majority of ethnic Jews. Paul expands on that third part of the divine design in verses 13 through 15 by simply pointing to his own ministry. Please notice, this isn't something future. He is speaking of his day. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, right? The Jews have been hardened, more or less. And now the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And look, I magnify my ministry, he says there at the end of verse 13. I make a lot of my ministry. I make a big deal of my ministry. Why? Because here's what I want to see, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. It's something I want to see happen now. It's something I want to see take place through the ministry and proclamation of the gospel. Why? And thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, so if through their rejection the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, then as the Gentiles are saved, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles. I hope and I pray, oh, I earnestly long for this, that that will then be the means God uses to make some of them jealous. Oh, and what will their acceptance mean then of the gospel but life from the dead for them? Oh, what a transformation. What an alteration. 
And so Paul is celebrating his present ministry and giving a description of how his ministry fits into this divine working in three parts. A hardening of the Jews leading in the gospel going out to the Gentiles, the salvation of God's people. The salvation of God's people among the Gentiles leading to what? Stirring up jealousy among Jews. That jealousy then leading to what? God saving more ethnic Jews because of the witness of the Gentiles. And that will continue in this present age until their full inclusion into the people of God. You see, he's defining the remnant for us. What is the dilemma? Oh, it looks to me like God's totally abandoned them. Looks to me like God wants absolutely nothing to do with them. Uh, and, and therefore, God's word has failed. What's Paul's solution? No, 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 no. You need to understand who the people of God are. You need to understand what is happening visibly through my own ministry. And you need to understand what is God's divine design for this present age. God's word hasn't failed. Third thing I want to do is this. Speak of the nature of God. I have already told you. I want to say something of his sovereignty. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. Principally. First eight chapters too. Second, certainly the eighth chapter. But the entire epistle secondarily. In the Bible for that matter. But just thinking of these three chapters. Complete gibberish apart from the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You can't make any sense. You can't make heads or tails out of these three chapters and what Paul is saying here unless you believe in an absolutely sovereign God who rules over all things and is doing exactly as he pleases among his creatures. There is a divine decree. It is expressed in the doctrine of election. It is expressed positively in what? That God has chosen a people for himself before the foundation of the world. And that positive decree of election is accomplished how? In time, by effectual calling. God sends forth his spirit to call his people, those whom he foreknew. The doctrine of election also has a negative expression. It is what? God has chosen to pass over some. He has not prevented them, nor does he prevent them from doing anything they want to do. He is not the cause of their damnation. He is not the cause of their lostness. But for whatever reason, we enter into a divine mystery. We enter into the decrees, the eternal decrees of God. He has chosen not to choose some. That negative decree of election is accomplished how? In time. He hardens. So election is accomplished positively in time, an act, an act of God in calling. That negative decree of election accomplished in time, how? By hardening. Not whereby he prevents people from doing what they want to do, but whereby God simply withdraws his common grace in ever greater measure, turning people over to the desires and dictates of their heart, that which already resides within. Unless we are clear on that, what Paul is saying here, I don't know how you make any sense of it. God is the king of kings, and God rules and God reigns supreme. It is impossible in this chapter to escape God's sovereignty. It speaks to us. It speaks to our generation. 
Many people uh, believe, sadly, in a God who requires very little of them. Many professing Christians. They believe in a God who requires very little, if anything, of them. They think God exists for the purpose of fostering their happiness. That's why God's there. Make me happy. And I agree with God, and I agree with the Bible, and I agree with the, peach, the preacher, insofar as what is being said fosters my worldview, and at the top of my worldview is my earthly happiness. That's what a lot of people think. Let's face it. They think God exists for the purpose of fostering their happiness. And so they limit his sovereignty. God has surrendered his rule to man's free will. That's what they think. God has surrendered his absolute rule to man's free will. They limit God's omnipotence. They think he has surrendered his infinite power to man's sentimental and silly notion of unconditional love. They think he has surrendered his immutability. That he surrendered his unchangeableness in order to accommodate man's earthly aspirations. A.W. Pink, last century, bang on. The God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of Scripture than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the midday sun. Face it, folks. It is truth. That is reality. The God of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of Scripture than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of a midday sun. God is the King of kings. Oh, we say it. We express it. Do we believe it? He is no pretend monarch. He is no passive bystander. He is no idle spectator. We're going to hear it right at the end of the chapter. From him and through him and to him are all things. He is the efficient cause of all things. He is the instrumental cause of all things. And he is the final cause of all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The poet penned these words. Ten thousand ages ere the skies were into motion brought. All the long years and worlds to come stood present to God's thought. There's not a sparrow or a worm, but is found in his decrees. He raises monarchs to their thrones, and he sinks them as he pleased. God's absolute unrivaled, unchallenged sovereignty. He is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. He does not exist for us. We exist for him. That is revolutionary. That will completely transform our paradigm of thinking and our worldview. He does not exist for us. We exist for him. Fourth thing I want to do is this, a reasonable response, threefold response. Let me give it to you by way of three questions. Here's question number one. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on God's sovereignty? How do we respond to the emphasis, the stress Paul places on God's sovereignty in these verses, the 11th chapter? Stephen Sharnock writes, 
Who can contemplate God's exact government of all his creatures without falling flat before him in a posture of reverence to so great and glorious a being? Oh, by this doctrine, God is exalted. We see that he is the only king. By this doctrine, holiness is promoted. We see that he is a great king. He's not to be trifled with. By this doctrine, we, we see that comfort is imparted because this God is a good king, a benevolent king to his people who lavishes upon them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, make use of this doctrine. Saturate your minds and your hearts with this doctrine. Again, the words of Sharnak. Who can contemplate God's exact government of all his creatures without falling flat before him in a posture of reverence to so great and glorious a being? Here's the second question. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Israel's jealousy? That's a good question. A really good question if I do say so myself. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Israel's jealousy? That's how Paul defined his ministry. I make much of my ministry. He says, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles. Why? Because I always have my fellow countrymen in view. I always have that remnant within Israel in view. I always have the full inclusion of that remnant in view. And my prayer, my hope, my desire, my aspirations is, is what? That God might use my ministry among the Gentiles, their salvation, to make them jealous. Oh, to get under their skin. To irk them. How? Why? Let me just back it up a little bit. This is where I get frustrated with 80% of the ministries ministering to ethnic Jews today. They don't make them jealous. They accommodate them. Did you just hear what I said? Maybe 90%. They accommodate them. How? You're God's people. We're God's people. We're both just kind of finding our way to God. I mean, it's the extreme in some circles what's called dual covenant theology. A dual covenant theology is simply this, that God still has a covenant with the ethnic nation of Israel. God has a covenant with the church. These are two different covenants by which the people of God are being brought to God. Because God has an earthly people, ethnic Israel, and God has a heavenly people, the church. And we have these two covenants, two ways. They're God's people just like we're God's people. I hear that kind of talk all the time. It doesn't make them jealous because it completely misses the point. I'm really dismayed by it all. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to build on this next week, I promise. And I'm going to add a third building block the following week for a number of reasons. Let me just boil it down to this. I, I, you get this feeling today that if you're not a Christian Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. I'm not a Christian Zionist. I'm not a Christian Zionist. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And I make a big deal of the church, not the nation of Israel. What is it an ethnic Jew needs to hear today? Now, let me just enlarge the question. What is it most evangelicals need to hear today? 
What is it some in this room, dare I say, might actually possibly need to hear today? I'm going to direct my comments as if an ethnic Jew is sitting right in front of me here. And you apply it as necessary, and you put it in a bigger context and picture. But here's what an ethnic Jew needs to hear today. If I'm going to drive this man, this woman, to jealousy, here it is. Number one, you, my friend, need to recognize that there is no privilege in being a Jew. That's the starting point. You need to realize, grasp this very simple fact. There is no privilege in being a Jew. The notion of privilege before God based on ethnicity contradicts everything Paul says in this epistle. Absolutely everything. Chapter 2, verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Uh, Can you make it any plainer? Ninth chapter. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Same chapter. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Same chapter. It is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's the first thing he would need to hear in order to make him jealous. I'm not sure we get much further than that unless the Spirit of God is working. But that's the starting point. You need to recognize that there's no privilege in being a Jew. Second thing is this. You need to recognize that Gentile believers are now part of the commonwealth of Israel and the covenant of promises. Did you hear that one? It's taken straight out of Ephesians 2. You go back and you, you, you read it at home this afternoon. The second half of Ephesians 2. You need to recognize that Gentile believers are now part of the commonwealth of Israel and part of the covenants of promise. Chapter 2, verse 29 of Romans. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 11. Abraham is the father of all who believe, including those who have not been circumcised. Chapter 9, verse 25. Those who were not my people. An Old Testament text that Paul has the audacity to apply to the Gentiles. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. Chapter 11, verse 17, you Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, there are not two peoples of God, an earthly and a heavenly. God is not going to reconstruct a theocratic nation in Israel. The church is God's holy nation. That's scripture. That's 1 Peter 2. We recited it this morning. The church, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, is the continuation of the nourishing root, the patriarchs. The church is the culmination of God's eternal purpose. The church inherits the covenant promises. That'll make a Jew jealous. And I dare say that is what Paul is doing in Romans. It is certainly what he is doing in his epistle to the Ephesians. He is making much of the church and the fact that the church is the culmination of God's plan. The church constitutes believing Jews, believing Gentiles. They are the true heirs of the promises. And he makes much of the church and the fulfillment of the covenant promises in the church. Why? To make them jealous. How many ministries to the Israel today do that very thing? No, they're far too accommodating. They get the message wrong, completely wrong. No, we want to drive them to jealousy graciously. 
that they might see and long for what is ours in Jesus Christ and come to saving faith in Christ. Here's the third thing I would say. My friend, if he's lasted this long, bless him. The Spirit must really be working. Here we go. You need to stop reading Old Testament covenant promises as if Christ never came and as if the New Testament was never written. He came, it was written. We now read those Old Testament covenant promises through the lens of Christ's incarnation, his advent into this world. We now define those Old Testament covenant promises through the lens of the New Testament. Peter himself wrote, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves. That's miraculous. But you. They were serving not themselves. They didn't get half of what they were writing. Because it didn't pertain. It pertains to you. In the things that have now been announced to you. Fourth thing I would say now is finally this. My friend, you need to repent and believe in Christ. If you do, you are numbered among the spiritual elect remnant. You are part of the full inclusion of ethnic Jews into the true Israel. And then I would top it all off with this. Welcome to the church. Welcome to the church. The people of God. The true remnant. The true Israel of God. How do we respond? Here's my third point of application. A reasonable response. How do we respond to the emphasis this text places on Paul's ministry? Just want to draw your attention to two things. Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass. Note the word salvation. Oh, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now take a look at verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Salvation. The salvation of God's people. It harkens back. It harkens back to what Paul writes in the first verse of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Oh, it harkens even further back to his opening statement in chapter 9. Just pick it up in the second verse. I have great sorrow. And unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is he yearning there for? Salvation. Salvation. Here is one of the biggest struggles of the American church in our day. Here's one of the biggest struggles. The gospel has absolutely nothing to do with felt needs. That is one of the biggest struggles of the American, American society, even the American church today. The gospel has nothing to do with felt needs. The gospel has everything to do with real needs. Our need, our only need, is for salvation. Salvation from the penalty due our sin. Salvation from the grip of our idolatry and salvation from the wrath of God. Again, let me repeat it. 
The gospel is not about felt needs. The gospel is about real needs. The gospel is about our precarious standing before a holy God. That we merit his just damnation, condemnation. The gospel is about this glorious fact that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The gospel is about this, that if we repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Oh, it all goes back, doesn't it? All the way back to the very first chapter. What was it Paul celebrated there as he drew his introduction to a close? Simply this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, the Gentile. Oh, Paul makes much of the gospel. He makes much of salvation. And my earnest prayer, much like the Apostle Paul in his day, my earnest prayer, my friend for you, if this gospel is still something alien to your grasp, to your understanding, that by the Spirit of God, you might come face to face with what it is you really, really, really need. You need to be saved from God, by God. You need to be saved by the wrath, from the wrath of God, by the mercy of God. Mercy, which is only available for those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Our Father in heaven above, we do pray that as your word has been proclaimed, you might bless it to our hearts, our souls. We pray that your name might be hallowed among us and in us, we pray that your kingdom might come in the salvation of souls. And we pray that your will might be done in earth as it is in heaven. May your glory be made manifest in your power, in your saving grace, in your abounding mercy among us. We ask it this day in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.